0: Hello, welcome back to the Chawton House podcast with Lizzie Frisby. This is where we talk about the events and history of this great house situated in the tiny Hampshire village of Chawton, which was once owned by Edward Austen Knight, brother of Jane Austen. Over the next half hour or so, you'll hear from the new owner of the Freehold of Chawton, Adam Knight, son of Richard, who we spoke to in episode seven. In particular, we'll be finding out more about Adam's involvement in the restoration of the house as a young architect. Hi, Adam. How are you doing today?
1: Yes, very well, thank you. Nice to see you.
0: And you. So I've obviously spoken to your father and your sister recently about the renovation of Chawton House from the nineties right up until today, really. And I know that you have been involved with the house. And of course, your father's been owner of the freehold since the late 1980s, and he's even passed it on to you. But I wanted to start right at the beginning. What is your first memory of Chawton House?
1: Well, the way the way we got to know the house in a sort of small way was we used to visit my grandfather Edward. Uh, we used to call him Bapops, mm. and we used to visit him. Sort of probably, I don't know how many we how many times we used to visit, but it was probably once a year at Christmas. And we were as kids, and so we got to know the house through through sort of family visits, occasional family visits. And the room I remember is the library, in that him and uh, him and Granny Betty used to used to sit on a big big sofa. Big old sofa with dogs on in the library oh. and and that was where we sort of filed in as kids to say hi to Grandpa oh. and to uh, and so I think that's probably probably my earliest memory of the house and then and then through those visits, the house was actually let was actually um, occupied by uncles and aunts in various flats. So the only areas of the house we really could explore were the corridors and the passages. Mm. So I think I think Caroline mentioned in her podcast that you know we used to play hide and seek in the in the house, but of course that was all through the through the little bits, the sort of bits between the flats. Yeah, so you can imagine it was just a labyrinth of of corridors and passages that we used to explore, but it never made any sense. I never knew where I was, <laughs> uh, and certainly didn't know the house well. But um, yeah, so my earliest memories are kind of kind of that, and also the you know Gr- Granny Betty was a great cook, so. I remember the smells coming out of this funny oh. pokey kitchen in the, in the courtyard Brilliant. and, uh, the myth of a, of a frying pan that never got washed. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yes. Yeah, so, so they're sort of vague memories, childhood memories, but they're, they're certainly, uh, you know, vivid in some of those spaces.
0: Yeah. It must've been quite magical as a child, was it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was, um, I suppose you you sort of took it for granted that, that mm. all of the cousins and the and the uncles and aunts and, and, and grandpa and grandmother, you know, they lived in this in this big house. It didn't really make sense of what it was and what it meant. But it was it was a lovely place to to, to visit
0: While I was growing up, yeah, of course. And so today in particular, I want to talk to you about your role within the restoration of Chawton House, because I am aware that you took on responsibility for some of the architecture work. Yes,
1: I happened, happened to be an architect. And I happened to have that opportunity, which was which was really good.
0: Yeah. So can you tell us a bit a bit about what the house was like before the restoration began? Because I talked to Cassie about what the restoration of the gardens was beforehand and what was your what was the house like right yeah, before I you got I, started.
1: We obviously got to know the house much better from nineteen eighty-seven when when my grandfather died. And at that period we used to spend quite a lot of time sort of clearing it up so that my father could go through the Quite a challenging process of finding a buyer for it for this lease, um, which was uh, which he's 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 told the story very well about that that sort of process that he had to go through and the challenges he faced. So selling it, but my part in that was really making the house look vaguely presentable, as presentable as possible. So we got to know the house very well by really clearing each room out and trying to make it you know as clean and tidy as possible for people walking around wouldn't get so shocked and run straight out the door again. <laughs> what happened over the next few years was was quite dramatic in that when when the house developers the hotel developers um got planning permission i remember being sort of vaguely part of that process and and observing that sort of from afar but um one thing they did do i think the only the only work they did do to the house while they while they officially owned it was that they stripped the tiles off the south range which is above the library and then replaced it with some green tarpaulin that was sort of strapped to the roof to keep the the worst of the weather out, and that became quite an alarming kind of v- vision of the house. Was this, yeah. this this tileless roof with this this little bit of green tarpaulin draped over it, and that was all that was keeping the water out of the library wing, the most important sort of space in the house.
0: Yeah, goodness. And
1: and what's shocking is that that bit of tarpaulin was there for ten years. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and I don't think the person who put it there expected that to be there for that long but it sort (laughs) of shows it shows the time it takes for things to happen in a a place like that
0: Um, really get underway I suppose so what was how did you go about the process did you have to alter the designs multiple times before things got built and renovated because obviously there was change in the potential ownership of the or the potential sorry Yeah, yeah
1: yeah, the, I mean the, the the architect Hugh Thomas, who was a practice of architects in in Winchester, Stevenson and Thomas at the time. But um, Hugh Thomas was the main architect, and he did a a proposal for um, a hotel and golf course, which was completely different to Sandy's vision. I mean, it was it was a, yeah. a, a redevelopment of the house. It was a completely new use, um, and there were there were extensions going into the gardens, and there were there was a big clubhouse. That, you know there was there was a it was a big undertaking and i was i was um i did do some work experience for the for hugh thomas while while he was doing the work and he did these amazing watercolor uh drawings of the scheme and actually witnessed the planning application process for that so i knew i knew how challenging that part of the process was going to be but that was a completely different brief to yeah. work to, to, the, to the final brief for the study center so yeah. uh, as my father said you know the, the the most interesting part of that process or the legacy of that process is it, is it it manages to capture some some of the land that had been sold off in the past it managed to you know bring it back into the estate and that's the that's the land that we can enjoy now so we, we owe a lot to the to the golf course scheme for yeah. for allowing that to happen
0: very interesting. And so then, so once it wasn't going to be a golf course, then what was the process undertaking after that? What what were you sort of mostly involved with?
1: I spent a lot of time at Chawton over the next few years in the early 90s, because after I did my architecture degree in Scotland, we were deep in recession in the 90, early 90s, and uh, I spent my year off building the Dovecote and converting it into a little house, which is just down the hill mm. from the house. Oh. So I, le- I lived in a, I lived in a caravan in in a shed in in what, what was a workshop next to the Dovecote, and spent my days converting it with the builders and working for them or working with them on the on the building site, and then spent my afternoons at an architect's office doing drawings and trying to make it work and spent a year doing that which was fantastic and it meant I spent lots of time in the village so I sort of we had a kind of connection to this place and then I had did my um, architectural diploma at university in London and as I finished it happened to be at the same time that that Sandy had come on board as this powerhouse in shining armour to save the day and I had this fantastic vision for the for a future for the house which to us was just a, a godsend mm. and so at that time I happened to be leaving college. This was in about 1995, and uh, while well, she was building her team, and so I think my role developed as as her kind of vision for mm. the for the house was developing, and she had met some architects along the way or been introduced to architects, and instead of instead of telling her what she what she could do and how fantastic her ideas were, I think most of the messages that she she got from architects was of things that she couldn't do, and she was told, "But well, hold on a minute, your your building, the building that you just bought is is listed, and that means that you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do that." And you can imagine, you know, from a from a, a sort of sandy standpoint, it must have been incredibly frustrating and shocking that her vision for this house was going to be compromised by a system that would prevent her from doing what she wanted to do. Yeah. So I think her her answer to that and she was quite a maverick she's quite a maverick character so she said right I'm going to do this differently how can I how can I build a team that's going to deliver you know what I want rather than telling me what to do <laughs> and you know she had she obviously had an idea to say well why don't we get Cass and Adam involved and that's what she did so Adrian Thatcher who was who is the project manager that she took on at the time came and met me in London in my flat and said what do you feel about coming to help help with the project and as a as an opportunity to join the team and help realise this amazing vision for the house that could save the house from our point of view. I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing to to have the chance of working. Um, mm-hmm. And so Cass and I suddenly found ourselves, you know, involved and dad was already involved as a trustee. So it made sense to kind of do what we could to help the process.
0: Mm. Was it daunting at all, taking a bit of responsibility in that way for such a big house?
1: Yes, I think, I think it was daunting. It was a daunting project because... I vaguely knew the process that was going to have to be gone through. I knew that Sandy was reacting, um, you know, understandably strongly against parts of that process. And yeah. So the challenge was how do we keep this project on the rails when um, and I think it was, it's always good to have slight naivety in these situations because you don't really know what you're taking on. But, you know, working with a team that Sandy had built up you know we started to pull the project together and our, and our first jobs were just to see what needed to be done to make it happen and I think you know when I was working on it on my own with Cass and Adrian and the team in the house you know we had a little office set up again in the library with computers and um we sat there and sort of went through what we had to do and how we were going to do it and we actually started with you know the main project task was to understand the history from the information that we had available so we spent we spent um you know the first few months trying to figure out what was going to go where what Sandy wanted to do what her vision was and and then what started to look at how we were going to find out more about the history of the house and put it all together into some kind of plan and the next stage of that was really to find an architect to take it on because it was obvious that I I was in no position to take a project of that size on on my own um and that was never the plan so Adrian was kind of tasked with helping me find an architectural practice to take the project on. And Sandy wasn't really interested in architects or professional advice. She just wanted it to happen. So so we we were were sort of left to it, really. And and so we drew up a shortlist and met various architects. We were in a strange position of, you know, aged 25 instead of going to an interview for a job at an architect's practice. I was Kind of going to an architects practice and having to interview them, which is really <laughs> really bizarre. And I think through that process you get a very good feel for for what you know how the practice is going to you know treat me and treat Adrian and treat the project. and And we met a practice, Andy Nichols and Mark Weber and Ian Brown, Nichols Brown Weber. They were called. They were a practice uh, based up near High Wycombe, and they they struck us as very you know easy going for a start. They had very good relevant experience in in similar projects. They were very enthusiastic. And they also sort of seem to understand the caveat that I had that this is, you know, we're we're bringing this, Joe and asking you to take on this project. Uh, But by the way, um, you won't get to meet Sandy (laughs) and and I'll be, I'll have to, um, you know, you'll have to just help me do this project. But Adrian and I have the go-between role. Sandy would only really deal with Adrian and I. So if we had trustees meetings or meetings with Sandy, that was, that was how it worked. Right. Uh, which was, which was, you know, for me, it was challenging and, 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 you know, made the project really interesting.
0: Was it but stressful? It,
1: it was stressful in that, you know, the, the, the planning process could fail at any, any point. and And if the planning process fails, Sandy walks away and, and that's, that and finished. That's we're back Gosh. to square one. So that, so every part of the project or every part of the planning process is leading up to quite a stressful outcome, because you either get planning or you don't True. Um, and the list of building consent process is fraught with with different challenges and and to to manage that process successfully takes a lot of experience and and um, time and effort mm. and money yeah. and and we were reliant on Sandy sticking with that process and not getting so frustrated with it that she abandoned the whole project and her credit she did stick with it spent the money and allowed us to spend the time on it and negotiate it successfully
0: mm, yeah how, how long did it take for that planning to go through then
1: it was a good two years in preparation oh. so to prepare the planning application took um yeah it took a full two years i think and then after the application was submitted it took another another year i mean the planning process should be you know you should count that within a few months you should you should be able to get planning i think Cass Cass and dad have talked about this the issue we had with um the landscape work but that that meant as an architect you submit the planning application and then you you sit and wait yeah and and the sitting and waiting was a year so we that was probably the most stressful time was not being able to do anything because we didn't have planning yeah and with a client with the client who was desperate just to get on with the job
0: Of course. What year was it that it finally got accepted then?
1: I think it was 19, it would have been 98. Right. I'd have to check that, but I think it was about 97, 98. Mm. So it's a good 10 years after the um,
0: handover
1: handover and our first experiences with the green tarpaulin. So it's...
0: (laughs) I mean, when you, when you talk about the green tarpaulin, I do have images of the house kind of just being a rather hickety pickety, like not quite knowing, not all fully put together. Where did you even start with the planning? Where do you go from in the house? How do you how did you imagine what it should look like within the rules of the planning?
1: Well, the one of the fascinating sort of bits of work that I had to do was was draw a plan of the house, and literally colour in every bit of wall and every bit of panelling and every, every little nook and cranny of the house with different colours showing when that part of the house was built. Oh, wow. And we had, we had all sorts of people involved in that process, um, dendrochronologists who would take samples of oak beams to find out which year they were felled, which would tell you which year that part of the building was built. Wow. And then, and then other little clues in the building that would tell you its history. And so by the end of that, you had a plan that showed this bit of the building was built then, this, this is an extension that was built then, and it was complex. And, and then the other part of that process was to list out every room and um, decipher what part of every room, the walls, the panelling, the the, the ceilings, the floor, what, what was historically and architecturally significant and what were the plans for that bit of the room. And that gave you an idea of which bits of the house had to go back in exactly as they were, because that's the listing process. It's sort of protecting that. And which parts could be altered. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of alteration that went on to areas of the house that could be altered. And then there's a lot of the house. A lot of the house was a purely restoration project of putting it back exactly where it used to be um, hiding all of the new services and equipment that it takes to keep a house like that um, running.
0: Yeah, wow, that must be incredibly complex, almost like fitting a jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah, it's, exactly, it's
1: exactly like a jigsaw. I mean, the work continues with the landscape and with all of Martin Caddick's work now. You know, what's fantastic about that is it's taking that jigsaw a bit further. So the, the, <laughs> the jigsaw's becoming bigger. And it's also becoming you know it's being pieced together a bit more by with every bit of work that's done and that's that's really really amazing
0: mm. and what was the most fascinating part within that research that you did then that you found at the house? was there a particularly old bit or a particularly part of the house that you found interesting that you could change a bit
1: i like i mean i think I think it's probably the the um the bit of the house that i find most interesting now is interestingly it's the bit it's the bit of the house that over lockdown probably most people have experienced um because of the cafe so it's the courtyard the central courtyard because if you stand in that space and look around it you know the walls of that courtyard tell you know every story that's happened to the house over the you know the 400 years of it is history. its history it's sort of it's a bit like reading a book you know you can look at those walls and see all sorts of of detail and different brickwork and lines and you know you can see how the building has been carved up through that courtyard because every side of it is different and from a different period and and i remember doing at the planning stage doing three dimensional kind of drawings of that courtyard because we were removing quite a large kitchen extension, which is where Granny Betty used to do her her cooking, where there was a a sort of hanging toilet extension on the the side of the library wing. There was um, a diagonal kind of corridor that crashed through the the first floor of the sort of northeast side of the courtyard. And all of those, we'd negotiated with the planners to remove all of those um, later Victorian additions, which were all quite poorly built. not adding anything to the house really in terms of architectural merit and so the work that we did was most dramatic within that courtyard and what's left is this sort of um you know these beautiful walls that that tell all those stories of what happened um yeah. over you know over the history of the house
0: yeah that's really fascinating actually i've never even thought about that because i love that courtyard and i often look up at the building around around the walls but i have never really thought oh you can see all this yeah, in,
1: a, in a rest in a restoration project like that to reveal bits like that, to reveal the build, bits of the building that, that you can stand and and sort of gaze at. And over the looking at it, you can kind of start to think, why the hell? Why is that brickwork completely different to that brickwork? Or why is that window different to that window? Or why is, you know, what's happening with that with that funny looking? You know, it's it's not pristine. It's not perfect. And the house isn't. Christine, it, it's sort of you know it's, it's layers of different mm. generations of owners doing different things to a to a building definitely
0: um, so if that was your favorite part what was the most challenging part of the house of making plans for
1: I think the most controversial part was the removal of Victorian extensions mm. generally which is goes against some of the kind of the rules of dealing with a listed building you know your your the, the respect for The generations of of change that's happened to a building you know it's it's the usual practice is to you know to retain everything Mm. um so so sandy's vision was was to almost take it back and i think that's that was controversial but then again the the quality of the victorian extensions was very telling in that they were visibly poorly built Mm. and although they were spaces that have their own history um there were kind of usually inherent problems with them and there was a there was a wing on the north side of the house which was called the sort of billiard wing or the victorian wing and uh, sandy was adamant that that had to had to go i mean that the, the house in in time did not have that wing but to justify that the removal of that wing you know had to be a far more complex process of of justification than just saying I don't like it. It's got to go, yeah. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that, you know, that was the process we had to go through very carefully. And in the, in fact, we could prove that in this case there were inherent structural problems with the with the building. Mm. There was merit in in its removal, and and it's you know it was accepted that that was the case, and and it happened. And I think that because it was Sandy was so focused on that being part of her vision, and it was you know flayed against the. The rules that everyone understood to be pretty pretty set in stone, and um, that was that was the challenging bit.
0: Yeah, but it turned out fantastically because it's obviously now a house that we can all enjoy today, and so many fans of sort of the Jane Austen period go there and see the work. That must be you must feel really proud of that work, then.
1: Yeah, I think I think um, I think we're proud that I'm certainly proud that I had a small part to play in the fact that the project was completed and it stayed on the rails while Sandy was was involved and um and so you know because the biggest worry was always that it it wouldn't happen suddenly and we would Mm. be we're left with with nothing until you've done some building work you have nothing to show for it you know paper's all right you know to have a planning application failed planning application is worth nothing Mm. um so so we were you know that that was a huge milestone was getting planning and knowing that Sandy was going to be able to do and to realise what what she wanted to to do with the house. Mm. Looking around the house now, in terms of the you know how how it is, we've got to be proud as a as a team of of the fact that we've retained the charm and character of the original you know the building as it was. You know, the, I, I don't know I don't know whether there are a lot of photographs of the of the house under construction during the the refurbishment. And the house is stripped back to its bare bones. In you know, every bit of wall paneling was removed. All walls were stripped back to to brickwork and. Timber's stripped back to just a skeleton roof. And then it's all been put back in a way that it's retained its original charm and character in, you know, the great majority of the spaces. So that's that's really good to see. I mean, that's very satisfying to walk around and you know, the Jacobean stair is still exactly as it it should be.
0: And so jumping forward to today then, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that you've recently taken on the responsibility of the estate from your father, how did that feel to finally take that on I guess you've been aware that it would be eventually your responsibility for a long while
1: yes I, th- I think of course I've been aware and it's great to have been involved with that awareness that part of the reason I think you know we all got involved is because we're all aware of, of the, our responsibilities to to protect the future of the house and and I think that you know for, for me it's been it's been quite interesting or very interesting to have a better understanding of certainly the history of the 20th century for the house and the challenges that the, the people who have owned the house before have faced and i mean martin caddick again his his work on piecing together the, the story of the 20th century for the house and it's and it's it's sort of why it was in the state that it was in when my father inherited it you know it's really it's really fascinating when I mean, edward my father's father inherited it when he was, inherited it when he was 23. I mean, that's, Gosh. I can't, I can't, can't quite get my head around that, <laughs> that sort of challenge being faced with, with that sort of challenge. So, so you kind of have an, under, have a, an empathy for how people have to react to what I'm going through now and, and, and what the different challenges that people have faced. And I think, listening, thinking of that and thinking of how, what my father was faced with. Mm you know, puts puts what I'm faced with in perspective because the house is is saved. I'm not looking at a at the same house that my dad was looking at when he inherited it. And I didn't face the same challenges and it's a testament to him that he's managed to see through what he's seen through over the last thirty years and shown the most extraordinary commitment to do that. So um you know the the benchmark is set. I've got to Whatever, whatever challenges I face, I've got to show, show the same <laughs> same commitment to to that responsibility.
0: I'm sure you'll do an excellent job of that. Um, obviously, because Chawton has obviously been a significant part of your life. I suppose is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it has. It sort of comes around, doesn't it? In circles. You spend some time away, and you and it, and you come back, and it's 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 really. Um, I suppose we we, you know you talk about how attached attached we are to the house um and that attachment comes from you know various experiences that we've had over the last sort of 30 years um with the house and with with Chawton and with the with the grounds and it's and it's a you know it's a real um privilege to be able to use it and have Mm. some benefit from that from you know walking through the through the Um, park on a Sunday morning I mean it's just just an absolute joy so so we're lucky to be to be involved really now because because the work is is, it's an ongoing concern rather than a a a kind of you know the sort of (laughs) challenge that my father faced.
0: Yeah knowing where which direction it's going to go in I suppose and how do you envisage the future of Chawton then are you set on it continuing hopefully to be as it is today for welcoming many visitors
1: yeah I think it I think thinking about Sandy's vision for the house as a study centre was fantastic I mean it kind of it kind of made sense in every way Mm. and seeing that now develop into a slightly wider net of the grounds being open to the public everyone getting an opportunity to know the house and experience it but it still has that core its core is still the same as as Sandy's vision it's fantastic and that and Mm we've always been very clear it's 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 our it was almost the perfect use for the house so we'll do whatever we can to to make that happen
0: yeah brilliant well thank you so much adam for your time and sharing this with us and here's to the future of chawton house thank you very much Thank you, Adam Knight, current owner of the Chawton House Freehold, and thank you for listening. If you head on over to the Chawton House website, you can find some images of the house during the restoration project, as well as some drawings that Adam produced for the planning application. Just follow the link in this episode summary. If you enjoyed this episode, click follow wherever you get your podcasts and keep up to date with all the events happening at the house by following Chawton House on social media or have a browse through our website. Finally, this is Cora Squared's Guitalele's Happy Place found on CCMixter.org.